Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Cave, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And you can buy merch at store.twoguysthedarktowercame.com. In this episode, we'll begin our coverage of The Shining, discussing part one, Prefatory Matters. Let's start the show. The Shining begins with Jack Torrance, a struggling writer and recovering alcoholic who lost his last job as a school teacher when he assaulted a student, interviewing for a job at the Overlook Hotel as the off-season caretaker. His wife, Wendy, is back at their apartment, considering whether this job may help save their marriage. She had considered leaving him due to his drinking and an incident when he lost his temper and broke their son, Danny's, arm. Danny has strange dreams and episodes when he seems to enter a dream world where he sees the word red rum. I wonder what red rum is supposed to mean. Jay, we're starting another book, and this is an early King book, King's third published novel after Carrie and Salem's Lot, and Rage would also be published this same year, 1977, and then it was followed by The Stand in 1978, so we're in sort of peak early King territory here. I still can't help but get a little aggravated with this guy's success, like... (laughs) As much as I love his work, and he, he deserves the success he's had, but right out of the gate, he wrote those four books, not even counting Rage, like those four books, yep. his first four, and they are all just so good. I'm not going to say they're perfect or whatever, but they are some of, if not the best of him, and they were the first few that he did. And he could have retired on just that. He could have published a stand and never written another word again. Yeah. But here we are, like, all these years later. Do you want to get even uh, more upset? He was under 30, I think, when all four of them came out. Mm Mm-hmm. What have you done with your life, man? I know I didn't have four best-selling, very long books under my belt at 30. No, I have to get a move on to do it by 50. The Shining was inspired partially by a visit to the Stanley Hotel that King made in 1974. There's an interesting story about how he got there right at the end of the season and he and his wife and kid were the only ones there. And then he had a a dream that his son was running through the empty hallways being chased by something. And he woke up and basically was like, oh, okay, yeah, I got my story. I I know where I'm going with this. And uh, sure enough. We get The Shining, and it's dedicated to that young son, Joe Hill King, who you may know from his own writing now, Joe Hill. Mm -hmm. Uh, You may not know this, Jay. I found out that this was adapted into a movie in 1980, also called The Shining, and it was directed by some guy named Stanley Kubrick. So um, I I don't know if that's easy to find or not, but uh, there's a movie of this. Yeah, we might have to like shop around on the... On the dark webs. Yeah. So that movie came out in 1980 and I guess King hates it, which is probably why no one's ever heard of it or seen it. But there is one that King was involved in adapting with TV Steven Weber. And that's the classic that everybody knows, Mm. the Shining TV movie. Yeah. 
And this is something you know much more about than I do. There is a 2013 sequel to this book called Dr. Sleep. And it was also adapted into a movie. And I say you know more about it than I do because I have yet to read that book. And because I haven't read the book, I have avoided seeing the movie. So I have experienced neither. But that is part of our longer term plan here. When we finish this book, I think we're going to jump right into its sequel. I will not mention anything about Dr. Sleep or its characters or story or anything other than to say that it is a sequel to this. Fair enough. In doing my research for getting prepared, it turns out that there is an opera made of The Shining. It came out in 2016. I think it premiered in Minneapolis of all places. I know next to nothing about opera and nothing about The Shining Opera. We might really have to search the dark webs to find that. Absolutely. And then this was interesting. I don't know what's come of this, but there was uh, a stage play in pre-production and also a potential spinoff called Overlook, which was going to be produced by J.J. Abrams that was being considered. I haven't seen anything more about that. And you know how King's books get optioned for all sorts of different things. So it'd be like, what, topiary animals, mazes, and lens flares? Lots of lens flares. Lots of lens flares, yeah. There was originally a prologue to this book titled Before the Play that chronicled earlier events in the Overlook's history, as well as an epilogue titled After the Play. And neither one of those things remained part of the published book. Uh, the prologue was published in a later edition and was published separately in Whispers Magazine in August 1982. Yeah, and then I think when they were promoting the 1997 TV movie, there was a, an abridged version appearing in the 1997 issue of TV Guide. The epilogue that you mentioned after the play, it was thought that it had been lost, but it had been rediscovered in 2016. And our friends at Cemetery Dance Publications published both of those in a deluxe special edition of The Shining. I think we're going to see if we can get our hands on this, but since it's not part of the actual published canonical book, we'll either cover it in a bonus episode or some sort of epilogue to the to the book. It might be interesting to see what contained in these two stories. Yeah, we're deliberately avoiding reading it ourselves at this point because the prequel-like information might kind of be a spoiler. Potentially, yes. So we don't want to find out the hard way, and so we're... We're keeping ourselves ignorant of it for now, for both ourselves and for you, the listeners. Yes. Who also probably don't have uh, easy access to either one of those. Although if you do, let us know, because we're interested in finding it out. All right. So let's get into this, Jay, just at, at least at the very high level. I read this book, but it was a long, 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 long time ago. So I'm basically coming at it new. And even though I joked about it earlier... The Shining movie is sort of this cultural touchstone that even if you've not read the book and maybe even not even seen that movie, I bet a ton of that is in your head mm -hmm. for much much of the culture. And it's been a while since I've seen that movie from start to finish. I picked up pieces of it recently, and I do have to tell you that it's such an iconic movie that it's hard to, for me at least, when I'm reading this, to see anything other than Jack Nicholson and... Shelley Duvall, when I'm reading these characters. This movie has been lampooned and homaged to the nth degree, is it, uh, to your point. Everything from just jokes about it in Simpsons episodes to completely recreating scenes from Stanley Kubrick's movie 
in Ready Player One. Yeah. There is almost no avoiding knowing what Kubrick did in his adaptation. It is literally everywhere. So yeah, maybe you didn't see the movie. Maybe you didn't read the book, but you probably know more about this than you think. Yeah. That might be unique among King film adaptations I'm thinking off the top of my head, where the movie has totally embedded itself in the pop culture like that. Like, I don't know if any other movie has that standing in King's adaptations. Having said that about how prevalent this is in the culture, I will say we're going to read the book on its own merits and try to not refer to the movie until we get to discussing the movie in a later episode later this year. Yes, that is our goal. And we are going to keep to our spoiler-free format, even though we are familiar with this book and we are familiar with the movie adaptations. We're going to just pretend like we don't know what's coming next. And if anybody is reading along with us and they actually don't know what's coming next, you'll be fine. Feel free to listen in and you will not get ruined or you will not be spoiled. I will say I've not seen the TV movie with TV Steven Weber. Uh, you're really missing out, but you'll catch up. I will. I will. And it's been a while since you've read this book as well, right, Jay? Yes. I'd say almost as long for me as, as it sounds like for you. So this is kind of like a, a fresh experience for me. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a, a, a refresh. I'm seeing this with new eyes and I'm enjoying everything that I've read thus far. I think it took me about four, maybe five pages to just completely fall into the book. That's King for you. Yep. That's how I usually respond to his work. I'm all in. Yes. And King sets us up with our first section, which is titled Prefatory Matters, which is the beginning matter. And we are really at the beginning here mm. to, to some extent where we're at the hotel when it's still a bustling place. Let's say it that way. Yeah. And um, we start off with an epigraph of one of our favorite writers, Jay. Yeah. Uh, King really effectively sets the mood for this book with his Edgar Allan Poe quote from The Mask of the Red Death. I can definitely see the connections because of how familiar I am with what comes later in the book, but it's there already. If you just read what he quotes of Red Death on the page there, that's enough for you to know that there's more to this story than just a family spending the winter in a hotel. Mm -hmm. And it's probably going to be a kind of scary experience. And couple that with the fact that this is now Stephen King, the horror writer's third major work, you probably are putting two and two together that this is going to be a spooky story. Yep. I, I think uh, that epigraph is very, very nicely done. And I always love when King references, or in this case, directly quotes Poe. So what I found most interesting about this section of, I think it was six or seven chapters, is that there is not a lot that is happening in actual real time of where we are. So we start with Jack Torrance in an interview with his potential boss, Ullman, to become caretaker of the hotel. And throughout that interview, we get these flashbacks. Mm -hmm. But they're not really flashbacks. They're more remembrances where Jack is thinking about things that happened to him and how, they're, how he got led up to this point where he's interviewing for this job. And Wendy's scenes are the same way. She's just sitting in her apartment watching her son and, and getting ready to potentially move to this hotel. And she's remembering what happened to lead her up to this point, both her courtship with Jack, Danny being born, 
and and their life together since then. Mm-hmm. And then even Danny, who's five years old, I think. Yeah, five. He gets his remembrances too of even though his remembrances are very sort of vague and childlike because he's a kid, but he's also remembering their previous life in Vermont and times that he's had with his parents. And so we're able to get this insight into all three characters and also their lives without going through all the boring details of King having to run through potentially 10 years of Jack and Wendy's life or five years of Danny's life by doing this all through flashbacks and still get sort of into the meat of it, which is, hey, here's a writer with problems, a family with problems. What are they going to do? And a child with something very special about him. Yeah, there's something about how uh, even the perspective that King has chosen to write in, instead of a like a third person omniscient, to reveal the quote unquote truth of the matter, we get a more interesting and intimate opportunity to get to know the characters by having these memories. We're still making the the small leap to assuming that these memories are true, that Jack's memories are, are true, that Wendy's memories are true, that Danny's memories are true. But if we combine all of those memories, we get that narrative. But more importantly, we get to know the characters more intimately Mm -hmm. that way, rather than somebody standing outside of them, describing them, listing their experiences. And King is really, he's really flexing his, his author skills here by being so tidy and and efficient, really, with like getting us to this point in just a few pages, yeah. right? It's like, I don't know, 80-ish pages or something like that. We know so much about these three characters, and we are connected to them, and we care about them. And the story hasn't really begun. Right. And it's wonderful. Yeah. And to your point about their remembrances, we know they're true because Wendy and Jack have this nice moment where they both remember the same incident mm-hmm. where she's about to ask him for a divorce and he tells her wait a week and ask me then mm-hmm. and from her perspective she sees that he's changed in that week that he's not drinking as far as she could, she could tell and she's got a nose for it like yeah he's not drinking and he he's changed and he's back to the jack i used to know and from jack's perspective he has an incident leading right before that and he's like oh my god and Wendy's about to ask him something and he's like, hey, can you wait a week and hopefully things will blow over? And sure enough, mm-hmm. they do. So we get that same moment from both of their perspectives. And you know, all, throughout all that, there's Danny with whatever is going on with him saying things like he could see one word in his head, divorce in all caps, and mm-hmm. that means something. And so he knows that that's out there as well. And it's not even just these three main characters that we get their remembrances of, but even the secondary characters that we see here. And Really, there's only the five characters we get in this whole section other than Jack's friend back at the boarding school. But uh, the other two characters that we get in this section are Ullman, Jack's potential boss, the hotel manager. And he talks about remembrances of previous events. So he brings up Jack's incident and why that, that, that could be a potential problem. And he talks about the things that happened previously at the Overlook Hotel with Grady and why he doesn't think Jack might be the best person suited for this job. And then Watson, who's the uh, what would you say? Engineer, caretaker, janitor, something for the hotel as it is, who's showing, yeah, just showing Jack around. He talks about things that happened at the hotel previously. So this whole section, it's all 
prefatory, as King has told us, like it's all leading up to something, and it's all by looking back at the past to get us to that point without going through the very boring things of, well, then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. It's all done in that way in which there's a reason that these characters are remembering these incidents. It's not just let's randomly look at what happened to Jack in the past. It's Jack has to think about the time he accidentally hurt that kid. And that also brings up other things in his, when he loses his temper. So, yeah. And part of all of these memories that King through these characters is sharing with us is he's just laying on the foreshadowing. Mm. There are so many examples of this, but we should talk about a couple. One of those is when Ullman tells Jack about the previous caretaker that had a really bad experience. He says, during our first winter, I hired a family instead of a single man. There was a tragedy, a horrible tragedy. And I made a mistake. I, the man was a drunk. What Ullman will ultimately reveal to Jack in that conversation is that that was Grady and Grady murdered his family and then killed himself. Ullman mm-hmm. is just linking cabin fever plus alcoholism plus family equals no bueno. <laughs> yeah, equals no bueno. Yeah. And here we go with family plus cabin fever plus guy with drinking problem. You are just too much like that Grady character. I don't know if this is a smart move. That makes me wonder if. There's like the potential, maybe it's too obvious, but what's the potential of something like this happening in in our story, in Jack's story, right? Or when Watson tells Jack as they're going around the basement of the hotel, hey, the boiler pressure gauge creeps. I tell you, this whole place is going to go sky high someday. And then he says, I just hope that fat fuck, meaning Omen, is here to ride the rocket again. I'm not saying that this is what's going to happen, but when a character says this, when you only have a certain amount of pages to write a book and a character says something like this, mm-hmm. take note of it. Or so many possibilities for ghosts. Like the this King has done such a good job of setting up this haunted hotel atmosphere. As we talked about a moment ago, we learn from Watson that every big hotel has a has a ghost. Sometimes people pop off here and there, heart attack, stroke, something like that. Hotels are superstitious places. There's no 13th floor or room 13 or mirrors in the back of the door you come through, stuff like that. And then this is like this past July, uh, a woman died in the hotel. Yep. And it's just like, okay, so yeah, the, the hotel's been around for a while. A lot of people have died in it. Yep. And if there are going to be ghosts, this hotel will... Have its fair share of ghosts. <laughs> and it's not just Jack who has these moments, but then Wendy also thinks about and feels that the three of them had been permanently welded together. That if their three oneness was to be destroyed, it would not be destroyed by any of them, but from outside. Mm. They're moving into a brand new situation. They've They've left their home back on the East Coast. They've come to a new place and they're entering this hotel, which you just mentioned is already a little bit spooky, and they're wondering if something else is going to destroy them. Yeah. And then one final foreshadowing item I wanted to mention was that King introduces Red Rum to us this far in the beginning of of the book. And it's something that Danny 
who we have established is just figuring out how to read. He can read some signs, but most he can't. And he has these visions or a dream or maybe both where he sees the reflection of a word. And that word is red rum. Yep. As you and I have talked about a little while ago, this movie is in everybody's subconscious. I'm sorry, this book is in everybody's subconscious. The movie is in everybody's subconscious. Red rum is like one of those things that's just out there. So it's hard for me to not know what this is leading to, like to come into this fresh, but it did make me wonder, did King intend for this to be obvious or not obvious? Yep. First time reader, 1978, you just picked up King's latest, you read Red Rum, are you going to figure that out in, a, in like as you read it on that page, or is it going to just feel like a nice progression of, aha, later on in the story? I'm not even going to say more than that no. right now, but I'm just like, here's Red Rum. It's in this prefatory matter section of the book, part one. It's already here. Yep. We mentioned that this is King's third novel. And unlike Carrie, which is about a teenage girl, and Salem's Lot, which is about a small town dealing with vampires, The Shining seems to be the first that is so obviously autobiographical, potentially. At least even somebody with just a surface knowledge, a surface knowledge of King and his backstory can start to pick out things, even in this first section, that seem, wow, is this a one-to-one match with King in some way? Again, this book was published in 77, so it was probably written in the year before that. King dedicated it to his son, Joe Hill King, who would have been about four when King wrote The Shining, so very close to Danny's age. King struggled with alcoholism, amongst other things, and so does Jack. I mean, what are your thoughts on the are we reading too much into this to say like, wow, is this King writing what he knows? I don't think we're reading too much into it. I, I have long felt that this is King's most autobiographical book. I think this is King's attempt to exercise some of his own demons by just writing them down. This is the, the most accurate like rubber stamp of King and his life and his family at the time that he wrote one of these books. I think he only had the one kid at this point. I think Joe was his only kid. I don't know if his daughter was very young if she was around. Yeah, or maybe she had just been born. They weren't traveling with her when they went to that hotel right. and had the experience that inspired the story. When he was back home writing this book, he would have had a five-year-old son or a four-and-a-half-year-old son who was it very easy to transpose Danny onto Joe or vice versa. And as you said, King struggled with alcoholism and substance abuse for most of his life. And he was definitely in the thrall of both of those things by the time he was writing this book. And he probably was able to see a dark side of himself that maybe he suspected or discovered because of those things. And felt, if I write a book about a, an author who's struggling, like I was struggling, just a few books ago. <laughs> and that author, rather than finding success like I did, finds more hard times and an even harder life. Where can that darkness take him? Yep. What story can I write? And then if I explore those dark corners and those dark possibilities, 
and just write them down? Is it writing them out of myself, taking that potential away? You know, like in uh, The Godfather, when Sonny threatens his sister's husband, as soon as he said, I will kill you if you hurt my sister again, everybody relaxed. Because as soon as you say the threat, the threat's not real anymore. Mm. So King's like, ah, if I say the bad things, I write this book, maybe I will never succumb to my alcoholism. Maybe I'll never hurt my family. I think that that's what this is. King wants to purge his worst fears and possibly dark fantasies about his family. So he created this character setting and story to get it out. As a parent, it's something that you'd never want to think about hurting your family, but he mentions it in interviews about this book and Jack talks about it as well, just like how there's times when you just like get enraged and you sort of lose track of everything that's going on. You can accidentally make a mistake like he does with Danny, where he just grabs his arm. He's not even thinking about what he's doing. And then he hears the like a pencil snap almost. And he realizes, oh my God, I broke his arm. Mm -hmm. Wendy tries to justify it as well, right? Because she's now he loves her son, but she loves her husband. Yeah. And says to Danny, your daddy, sometimes he does things he's sorry for later. Sometimes he doesn't think the way he should. That doesn't happen very often, but sometimes it does. And just that sort of like justification of it. And like you said, if he's trying to get it down, like maybe that could be a awareness of the problem and a way to to step away from it and not have it actually happen. One of the things I, I like that that King has done in this section is make Jack sympathetic, despite the fact that, you know, he seems to be a happy drunk, right? Like mm-hmm. that's when he's hanging out with his friends and He's in a very collegiate manner, right? He's hanging. It's when he has his best ideas. Well, when they're younger, they're hanging out as a group and they're having these like big discussions about writing and authors. And yeah, sure, there's dr- drugs and 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 alcohol going around. But you know, Wendy's proud of uh, her husband and how he he comes out of his shell there, and he has this decent relationship with the other faculty member when he's drinking. When we're introduced to Jack, we're introduced to him. In contrast to Ullman, Mm. who's shown as like this very prissy- Fastidious. Yeah, fastidious, but like also very pretentious type of person who thinks he's better than everyone else, including Jack when he tries to catch him with the the whole cabin fever thing and Jack's able to turn it around on him. So yeah, I know exactly what cabin fever, it's, it's X, Y, and Z. And he's like, oh yeah. So doing that, King is showing you like, yeah, this guy has had problems, but he's not a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Or at least he's not somebody you should just hate from the get-go. Like, he could be sympathetic in some ways, even if that justification that Wendy gives doesn't really hold up, right? Like, if Daddy gets mad, he should be hit, hit, hitting his kid or, or hurting him. I really liked what King did by by subverting some of, of what's going on here in, in how we get to know Jack a little bit. Because we learn about the story about how Jack assaulted the student, and then we find out why. The student was angry at his teacher, so he slashed his tires. And when Jack caught him in the act, you know, he basically just grabbed him and threw him against the car and like, what are you doing? In isolation, that seems like a reasonable reaction. Anybody would get pissed off and potentially physically violent if you caught somebody slashing your tires. Yep. Especially if you're Jack who has not a lot of money and like replacing those tires is going to cost like weeks of pay. Yep. So, okay, but then King brilliantly undercuts Jack's justification for that by telling us almost simultaneously the story of Jack's assault on his own son. Uh-huh. 
So it's like, okay, is was he just a guy who flew off the handle because a student slashed his tires? Or is this a guy who really has a problem with his temper and will hurt whoever is within grabbing distance? King still manages to keep him sympathetic, which I applaud King for the ability to do so. But he makes sure that he's still riding that line. Yep. We're not just going to let him have a pass because he shoved a student. We also have to remember and keep remembering that he broke his son's arm. And Elman says that too, right? He doesn't call it, you know, the reason you don't have your last job, but the last time you were in a position of authority or or a position of being in charge of students. Mm-hmm. More so, you can't lose your temper with ki- with kids or students. Uh, it's one thing to just like lose your temper at a, you know, at a football game or with somebody your own size, but definitely not with kids. What else influenced King? When he was writing this story, yeah. So he points to uh, a number of different authors and writings. He had worked on a a story that was called like the Dark Shine or something like that. That was a a short story he wrote a few years before The Shining, and it was about a boy who makes dreams come to life. And that was heavily influenced by a Ray Bradbury short story called The Velt. And then also, if you know anything about The Shining. You could see how The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, a King favorite, is also an influence on this. You had already mentioned The Mask of the Red Death, but The Fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe was another influence. Mm. Some have cited Robert- Marasco. Yeah, Robert Marasco's uh, novel, Burnt Offerings. I am not familiar with that novel to know, but I've seen that mentioned as an influence. And then also Guy de Maupassant's The Inn, so a, a couple of other things. And then finally, the title, The Shining- comes from the John Lennon song, Instant Karma, with its chorus of, we all shine on. He says, like to Joe King, who shines on. Mm-hmm. All, all sorts of things that King is drawing upon here. And I don't think it's any surprise that Shirley Jackson is prime amongst those. King has mentioned his love for Jackson numerous times. Oh yeah, for sure. We will continue to see if there are other autobiographical instances of uh, of this as we continue on. But along the way, Jay, we're also going to look for Dark Tower Thinnies. Are there any in this section? I'll go first. I want to just call out the fact that we learn that the Overlook was built in three years from 1907 to 1909. And that means that the hotel was completed in 1909, which adds up to 19. Certainly does. That explains everything. That's right. Even though Danny is only five, he seems to be a little bit wise beyond his years, Mm. even the way he talks. During one of his moments, Danny asks his mom, did daddy have an accident? Mm -hmm. Because he he sees something in, in one of his episodes. And Wendy wonders, did daddy have an accident? Maybe a chance collision with fate? Surely nothing more concrete. And this is in regards to the fact that Jack had, when he was out with his friend, they had run over a bicycle. Right. Which again, is reminiscent of a lot of King, right? There's always bicycles being run over, it seems like, or bicycles in the road. But this whole idea of that it was a chance collision with fate, that doesn't sound like fate to me. That sounds like Ka. Hmm. It is the thing, like it's one of the dominoes, right? If, if that bicycle hadn't been in the road, he wouldn't have had the shared experience with the colleague. He wouldn't have sort of cleaned up his act. He wouldn't have needed the job at the Overlook and yada, yada, yada. And she would have asked for a divorce. 
like th- that's what's caused her to not ask for the divorce, right? Because he mm-hmm. has this moment where he says, I'm not going to. So all of this leads them on their way. I can dig it. That's that's Ka for you. I wanted to call out the mention of a blue plate. Ooh, wow. And we're learning a little bit more about Danny and his, I guess, superpowers. <laughs> we're getting this description of because when he concentrated his mind, it had flown out to his daddy and for just a moment before Tony had appeared and the strange things had blotted out their kitchen and the carved roast on the blue plate. For just a moment, his own consciousness had plunged through his daddy's darkness to an incomprehensible word more frightening than divorce. And that word was suicide. Mm. But as interesting as all the rest was, the fact that they were serving their roast on a blue plate, perhaps a four special blue plate, Uh I I thought I would call it out in our thinny section. I read right over that. It was a very good catch by you. We had mentioned this part of this line earlier. In sleep, she did believe them, and in sleep, she felt that the three of them had been permanently welded together, that if their three oneness was to be destroyed, it would not be destroyed by any of them, but from outside. And when she says that the three of them had been permanently welded together, it's almost as if they formed their own quartet. Mm, I like it. I think that the way that Roland talks about quartet in the Dark Tower, it seems like it's the formation of a, a family or a brotherhood or, or something that is tighter. And, and like almost cosmic in its connection. Mm. But why can't two spouses and a child be just as connected? Especially when it seems like the child has some other powers as well mm-hmm. that might be cosmic in nature. Who knows? Yeah. I know we're very early in the novel, but are there any yucking it up moments? Blah. I didn't have any to call out. In this uh, section, how about you? I'm a little bit ashamed to call this one out, but the man Watson, who is showing Jack around, keeps pulling out his handkerchief and blowing his nose in it, and then he opens up the handkerchief and looks at his snot and uh, makes a little observation of it, and then stuffs it back into his pocket, and then he does that on a number of occasions. And yeah, that's not for me. No, you don't do that. You don't peek in the tissue. Uh, I don't use a handkerchief. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you're classy, classy. You, just, you just shoot it right out onto the sidewalk right? yep. well very good very good sir should we thank our patrons for supporting the show and getting access to p- exclusive patreon content i think we should absolutely they're the ones who totally make it worth it and we appreciate them every time we do the show and every time we see uh a new patron join and i think we've got a couple new ones right jay yeah, we want to thank Isla T and Michael A, who have joined recently. We really appreciate your support, and we appreciate all of our patrons' support. Yeah, we just recently published a bonus episode on the Green Mile. That's right. And we are about to cover a short story from the Blood and Smoke col- collection that Stephen King did an audiobook for. We're doing one of the stories from that. And our patrons actually get to vote on that, Jay. So they're going to direct us as to which of those three stories we're going to read. Mm, yes. By the time you hear this, that episode's going to be out. And if you want to know what our thoughts are on it, become a patron so you can get into that special feed. That's right. So Sean, I think it might be time to talk about some fun stuff. Yeah, let me... 
start with one of mine. Ullman makes a point of bragging about his Overlook Hotel, which, uh, you know, it's a pretty big deal. He likes to point out that four four presidents have stayed at the Overlook. And when he mentions them, Jack's like, yeah, but I wouldn't be too proud of Harding and Nixon. And I thought that that was another way that Jack gets my sympathy by pointing out the crappy presidents. (laughs) I wanted to call out King's favorite Twilight Time. He's gone out of his way to bring that into several of his stories, a couple in Hearts in Atlantis and things like that. And here he doesn't mention it by name, but there is a line, now it was five o'clock and although he didn't have a watch and couldn't tell time too well yet anyway, he was aware of passing time by the lengthening of the shadows and by the golden cast that now tinged the afternoon light. Surely this is twilight time, no? Absolutely. I almost want to put together a book of non-existent stories that King mentions in his books. We had the the one about Hemingway and Ur. Do you remember about the dogs? Oh yeah, the winter dog or something. Yes, yeah, that that was good. Here we we learn about the short story that really got Jack's career going. He gets published by Esquire for the story Concerning the Black Holes. And I don't know if like this is a sci-fi chance or sci-fi story, which I can't imagine being published in Esquire, or if it's just some sort of pretentious book short story that Jack wrote, but Concerning the black holes, it gets called out and it makes Jack some uh, fairly significant cash. So uh, he feels pretty proud about it. And Wendy feels proud for him too. It does have a very elusive title. It could be about so many things. Yeah. Which I guess that's part of King's, you know, King's having some fun with this. He's like, I'm going to write a title and Jared guess what that story is. Yeah. Who knows? For all we know, it might be a short story that King wrote way back when. And- mm-hmm. I'm never going to mention what this is actually about, but I wrote something like that once. It could be about the uh, the terrible infrastructure in the city and all, all the, <laughs> the bad road conditions. Yes. Right? I think it's Omen who uh, doesn't like when people play solitaire and cheat when he can't get all the aces out. As somebody who gets told by his daughter to play a lot of solitaire, and I actually enjoy playing solitaire, I have to say that it does get me mad when... I can't get all the aces out, and every once in a while, I'll let one slip just to keep the game moving along. Uh, I, I, I can't agree with you on that. If <laughs> it's the whole point of the game. If you can't solve it in that shuffle, then you just you, you haven't won. You shuffle again, and you start a new game. My grandmother was a hardcore solitaire player. Like That's pr- pretty much who taught me how to play the game, and she always had cards around and was always playing solitaire. And she told me that... When you lost solitaire, the devil won, which I always <laughs> what? Yeah, that's laying on some Catholic guilt on on just this game I played a past some time. Yeah, nice. no, the devil won. I I mean, I guess maybe if you cheat, then the devil really won, right? Like that's when the devil wins, not when you just lose. You can't help that. Like wow, so the devil's got two out of three chances of winning every game of solitaire. I know, right? Old Beelzebub, he's got that rigged. Yep. House always wins. Any more fun stuff before we uh, start to wrap up? I've got one more thing, and I want to talk about the original hardcover artwork. Oh, yeah. And I've seen that. We'll put a, sh- a link in the show notes. I'll start off by just apologizing to wh- whoever <laughs> was uh, involved in that, in charge of it, contributed to it. But in my opinion, that original cover is terrible. <laughs> 
Wendy looks like quote unquote generic blonde lady. Jack looks very much like a low budget Warren Beatty. <laughs> and Danny looks like a ceramic doll with a bowl haircut and blank white glowing eyes. What is going on here? It doesn't even look like a haircut that a kid would have in the late 70s. It's just terrible. These people don't look like people. King wasn't an unknown by the time this book was published. His publishing house could have gotten just probably anybody, would have been clamoring to get their work on the, the cover of the latest Stephen King novel. Yep. And this is what the world got. And it's really disappointing. I'll say at least the designer managed to include the overlook and one of the topiary animals, but uh, it, it just, it's lame and it looks bad. There's no cohesive style to it. The characters don't look like my imagination of them. You talked uh, earlier about how you just can't not picture Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall. I agree. It's hard to not see them or see anybody else in this. I personally can't help but imagine King himself. Mm. Jack looks like Stephen King. That's another reason why I see like the parallels are so strong between the author and the author's surrogate character in this that I saw King talking to Ullman and being insulted by that interview. At any rate, I don't think the half-assed Warren Beatty on the cover is the right look. And I guess just giving Wendy a generic face and blonde hair, that's there's more to her than that. It's just overall disappointing. I'll shut up now, but I don't like the cover. I thought he looked more like a cut-rate Charles Grodin than Warren Beatty, but your point still stands. The butterfly collar is pretty great. I have no idea what they're doing with Danny. He sort of looks like he's out of Children of the Damned with those white eyes, but like his haircut and his facial expression make it look like something really wrong. And the, the topiary garden creature, it looks like one of those big puffy dogs like uh, than any sort of animal that you'd actually put in a topiary garden. And I'll call this out. There's a Twitter account I follow called uh, Pulp Librarian. And the person who runs that account has a series called Women Running Away from Gothic Houses. <laughs> and it's women with long hair who are running away from these houses that are haunted. And the Wendy on this cover is very close to that. If she was running away from the hotel, she would fit that perfectly. But that look is just so generic, gothic. I don't know if they were like trying to go for like a romance cover almost, but all their facial expressions don't say that. It It's very odd. And like you said, King was well known. The, the subtitle on this says, a new novel by the author of Carrie and Salem's Lot. So the idea was like, hey, you remember those books? This is just as good. And uh, the cover does not belie that at all. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Just, just a boo from me <laughs> on the cover. Boo. Well, I think it's time for some other worlds than these. Let's end on a much happier note than on the, uh, the, the book cover. You want to start off? Yeah, I'll start off. I started watching a show on HBO Max called Winning Time, and it is a fun look at the rise of the LA Lakers in the late 70s and early 80s as the the Showtime Lakers as they were called because they had Magic Johnson cream and they the new owner Jerry Buss wanted to really bring the Lakers into a more of an entertainment than just a a basketball team. He wanted to make it fun and fit LA. 
And it is fantastic. Is that why Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was in Airplane? Yes. Yeah. It stars John C. Riley, who plays Jerry Buss, the owner, the new owner of the, the Lakers at the time. And the first episode is about him buying the team. And the second episode focuses on drafting Magic Johnson. It's just filmed in this very unique way because it's set in the 70s and 80s. Like they do it on an old stock film and it's sort of documentary-like. And there's fourth wall breaking when when people like address the camera directly like in the middle of a conversation it's directed and written by adam mckay who did um the big short amongst other things and so he's got that it's got that feel to it anyhow i recommend it because i found myself like actually smiling while i was watching it which is not something i do when i watch tv a lot like i could feel a grin on my face just because i felt just happy watching this because it was it was a fun and unique way and even though I grew up in Cleveland, I have a soft spot for the LA Lakers, especially in the 80s. They were one of my favorite teams. And I realize Jay's looking at me with a blank face because he doesn't know anything about basketball. But anyhow, it's a pretty good show. And if you have any interest in in basketball or even like a unique look at the 80s, take a look at it. And John C. Riley's just an American treasure. So Very cool. I don't think I'll watch that one just because I got other things in my queue that... Uh will always be a higher priority. Totally understand. But for you sports fans out there, winning time, it's it's worth checking out. Well, I've also been watching something on HBO Max. It's a limited series called Landscapers. Mm, I've seen a trailer for that. And this stars Olivia Coleman and David Thewlis. And it tells a story about two seemingly completely ordinary Brits who get caught up in a murder investigation. Mm. And it's based on a true story, the events and the details of their lives, while they are fairly ordinary people, are interesting. But what really takes this show to another level, and the reason why I'm even mentioning it here, is because of how wonderful the production is. At its core, it's a relatively straightforward story. There's a murder investigation. You learn about what the cops know, you learn about a little bit of the accused side of the story. The way they convey this information is just wonderful. It's glorious. It's They do all sorts of things. Sometimes there's a scene that's completely oversaturated in color. Sometimes they'll do a scene that's black and white, and it's, it's to enhance the mood of, of that moment. They do other things where uh, a character might be telling something that happened in the past and it'll cut to like, oh, well, there's this thing that happened on a train. So suddenly everybody involved in this conversation will be on the train and you'll see what happened that the conversation is describing. But the person speaking is standing there Mm. as though they are in the scene, but they're not of the scene and they're just telling you the story. So you you get to see it happen as they describe it. And then there are other times where they'll have a set that is obviously a set. It's like something that was built for a stage. And you can see that behind it is just a dark curtain. And the main characters who are having the conversation, they exist in the scene, but the extras in the scene are truly generic characters. They have masks that obscure their facial features because they're not important to, to that part of the narrative, but they needed to you know, it didn't, didn't want to have an empty room right. kind of thing. So the show does all of this extra work that it doesn't need to do to tell this story effectively. And it makes it 
just so much more than the sum of its parts. And it's only four episodes. Hmm. That's it. I would say it is the smallest investment you will make in some seriously quality TV. If you have HBO, definitely watch this. It is saved on my list. So in between episodes of Winning Time, I will hope to get to it. Yep. Check it out. And that's Landscapers. Landscapers and Winning Time are both on HBO Max. We've recommended so much HBO Max lately. I like they should be giving us a free subscription. I wish that, uh, you know, maybe they could become a sponsor. I don't know. HBO, if you're listening. Yeah, we'd love to become a sponsor. All right. Well, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. Check out our merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. Sean, let me interrupt you for a second. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I want to talk about our merch for a minute. Oh, our merch. Yes. We've had this merch store going for a little while. It hasn't been a long time. It's just a little while. But I want to just call out a couple of really cool things that our listeners can get into. We have a sticker that is Mature in the Turtle. Ooh. But it's really the message, all things serve the beam in the shape of a turtle. Nice. I know our listeners can dig that. We also have a pint glass with two guys to the Dark Tower came logo on it. And to keep things meta, because everyone knows how much I love meta things, we have a sticker of a picture of a pint glass with the two guys to the Dark Tower came logo. Mind blown. And of course, if you're not into stickers, you're not into pint glasses, and you're not into meta stickers, you can get a t-shirt. Short sleeve shirts in both uh, regular and women's comfort cut with the All Things Serve the Beam turtle logo on the front and two guys to the Dark Tower came written out in fancy font on the back. Those are just some of the exciting products you can get in our merch store. And if you buy one of those t-shirts and show us a picture of it, we would love to see that. Or any of the merch, really. Take, take a picture of yourself with the merch and send it our way. Yeah, for sure. Also, if you like the show, but maybe you don't like it enough to buy merch, you could still rate us on Apple Podcasts, and that costs you absolutely nothing, but it does win our support and thanks. And helps other people learn about the show. Which is always important. And again, if you also want to support the show in some other way, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover The Shining, part two, closing day. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. For our younger listeners, TV Guide was a magazine in which you looked at to see what was on the television because there's no other way to find out what was going to be on unless you pick Question. up- Question. Yes. What, what is a magazine? <laughs> yes. Magazine is, if you could picture an electronic book, but instead of made of pixels, it's made of paper with ink on it. Oh, okay. Cool. Intriguing, right? And this contains information about what will be on the television screen. Yes. And it would tell you what was going to be on the television from approximately 6 a.m. till midnight, which is the only time in which there was TV shows on. And after that, <laughs> it was just a blank static. So.
we kid, we kid. By 1997, TV was on for 24 hours. <laughs> but it would be in the small agate type. It was very small. It would just say, here's what's on from midnight to six in the morning. It was mostly infomercials. Yeah. That was when uh, Mr. Popeil was at his <laughs> strongest. Yeah, that's true. Power cosmic, just like the Silver Surfer. Yeah, D Danny is the Silver Surfer. Spoilers. That make Jack Galactus. Huh. No. No. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, check my notes. The answer is no. Got it. All right. <laughs> 